Chapter Three of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Three. In answer to the shouts of Tim's uncle, the valet appeared in the doorway. He was wiping food off his mouth with the back of his hairy hand. I liked him for nothing, absolutely nothing, but most of all. I disliked him, then, for the cool insolence with which he swung the uncle's wheelchair around, as if he were slapping us all in the face, and pushed the still angrily vibrating old gentleman out of the dining-room and back towards his apartments. When we entered the long, graciously appointed living-room, the first stray whiffs of the equinoctial storm were plucking at the heavy draperies. Beth was sitting at the piano, playing softly. Madame Leclerc was posed against the casement, her soft dress molded by the breezes, her head back as if at any moment she would begin an aria, and such music as the Metropolitan had not heard since Sembridge would issue from within her throat. Let's skip the next hour. Above the flow of the ex-prima donna's chatter, I was listening to the rise of the storm. Where else in the world do God's majesty and power in nature ever seem as striking as it does near the sea, when the wind rises and you hear the distant pound of the surf, and safe on the solid land you can admire without being afraid, be awed without being cowed? It must have been fully an hour, though, before Madame Leclerc finally bade us good night and slept off to her room. I had the feeling that Madame Leclerc would sleep as gracefully and dramatically into a powder room to brush her teeth. Well, finally, breathed Tim, in that alone at last tone, that made me feel worse than unnecessary. I rose with studied nonchalance. I have a little work to do, I explained elaborately, and a few too young people. Don't give us that you young people stuff, laughed Tim, and Beth laughed too. Anyhow, we'd be afraid to be alone up under the roof. Tim had caught my inquiry and answered it. Beth and I have found the most wonderful spot from which to see the ocean. Come along. We always take my portable radio up with us, and from that deep, comfortable window seat. So that was how I found myself with my face pressed close to the window up under the eaves, the rain beating fiercely against the heavy leaded glass, the wind laying fierce, clutching hands on the strong old house, and blue-gray flashes of lightning filled the world with wonder and horror. Tim and Beth sat close together, and I didn't need to pry to be sure they were holding hands. We talked very little. The spell of the storm was upon us all. We felt, I think, all the majesty of a storm at sea and we were at the same time deeply grateful that our ship was a house and that it was anchored firmly on solid rock foundations. The radio was playing softly with occasional protests of static when the lightning flashed. It was some symphonic recordings, I remember. A feeling of drowsiness began to come over me, very soothing and pleasant in the midst of that fierce equinoctial outburst, and then I was jolted into full wakefulness. You know how at the end of a lightning storm though the thunder seems far away, and the danger pleasantly remote, there will often be two or three particularly bright flashes. Such a flash, bright and swiftly repeated, floodlighted the scene before me, and I had the quick impression that against the horizon, and over the rise of the lawn and the sea-wall, there were the unmistakable lines of a ship. Look, I cried to the two, a ship, or am I crazy? They peered out into the darkness. There was a second flash, this time quite faint and remote, and yet in the split second of illumination we were all sure that we saw a ship close in shore, much too close in shore for anything but peril. Tim's fingers twisted the radio dial from long to short wave. 
we seemed to be reasoning simultaneously perhaps we thought it was a ship being dashed against the rocks and was even now calling for help out of the radio came a jumble of ship signals and calls the crying of terrible static but no sound of any ship in danger no real cry across the air for help then in sharp descrescendo the storm died down let's go to bed said sleepyhead beth had jumped up and looked at her wristwatch i had not realized that it was almost midnight reluctantly tim rose as for myself i was quite ready to sleep we flashed our way down the stairs that led to the floor where the bedrooms were saw beth safely to her door waved her a wordless good night and were about to tiptoe our way back to our own rooms but even as she swung her door open i caught through her window a glimpse of the porter's lodge the valet was still up or else he kept the light on in his quarters while he slept i left him at his room and i padded on to mine up to that moment i had been more than ready for sleep now a sudden alertness pulled me to the window the rain had died down to a drizzle the lightning had faded to rare dim flashes far toward the east yet i stood in the deep recess of that bay window looking out across the lawn toward the sea then over the hill he came strange how a wet raincoat will gleam in the darkness of the night i saw him more than a hundred yards away my eyes followed him as he crossed the lawn without hesitation or stumbling he was walking like a man who knew his way around the grounds even in the darkest night he was heading straight for the house no doubt of that i leaned forward wiping the damp mist from the inside of the glass a faint flicker of lightning wakened exasperatingly inadequate glimmers what queer memory made me feel that i had somewhere somehow seen that figure before and seen it at close range before i could answer my own query the figure was lost in the deep shadow of the house i was one living ear craning for sound rewarded i heard far off in the building the ringing of the ancient doorbell i know that i leaped across the room opened the connecting door between us and called softly to tim he had already been half asleep but in an instant he was up and we stood i at the window he at my partially opened door nothing happened my way but both of us heard the sound of the door below open the whisper of voices and then silence i took a book from the guest bookshelf and thrust it between the door and the jam another book i placed in back of the door to hold it in place then each of us took turns as sentries at the window tim flung himself down on my bed and slept after an hour i woke him and he watched then i i had a rush of guilty consciousness i knew that i had slept for a misty dawn was climbing up out of the sea drenched and foggy and gray and tim lay in his dressing gown on my bed sleeping the sleep of the justly exhausted if our visitor had left during the night he had left without our seeing him beth met us in the big reception hall had it and raincoated for our trek to town tim wheeled the small car out of the garage using all precautions not to disturb the still sleeping house and with Beth jammed in between us, we hit off across the broad highway for the village and the first Friday Mass. How wise the church was when she picked the morning as the time for Holy Communion. One rises feeling so clean, washed with the sleep of the night. Around one the earth is on tiptoe to worship its God. And human speech comes slowly, almost reluctantly, even between the dearest of friends. One has time for God as the beautiful day rises over the beautiful world one has a most pressing need for god we knelt together at mass in the little village church we and a handful of villagers and people from the countryside 
Instinctively, I stepped aside to let Tim and Beth kneel together at the altar rail. I liked them like that. I'm sure God did, too. When we left after Mass, the sun showed signs of winning its unequal conflict with the clouds. We stopped in at a little tea shop for coffee and fruit, and then hit off toward home. Let's take the old road along the seawall, said Tim. It's not really a man-made seawall, just the high cliffs that nature built to protect us against the sea's bombardment. It's rough and hard going, but after a storm, the sea is beautiful. Beth clearly loved the idea. I approved heartily, and the light car under the strong hands of Tim sped safely along the narrow, rutted road that overhung the sea. The waves were still pounding a bit. Bright ruffles of lace were sewn on each approaching roller. One could feel in the solemn air the threat that the equinox had not run its course. So I think we were all startled when, as the road curved sharply, we saw just before us an absolutely peaceful cove, and in the cove a small diesel-powered launch quietly riding at anchor. What a perfect harbor that would be, I thought, swiftly, if the cliffs did not rise so sheerly above it. As it was, the two calm arms of rocky land enclosed the deep pool of water, and overlapped enough to keep the storms out, and yet to admit the passage of a good-sized ship under the handling of a good helmsman. "'Well, I'll be blowed!' cried Tim, softly lured into nautical verbs by the side of the ship. "'Is it the one you thought you saw last night?' Beth asked. "'I wasn't sure. There was clearly no sign of damage on this ship. Besides, I wondered if I could have seen it from that high window— or if, when I had seen it, it was dangerously making for the harbor, or if that had been another ship and this one had been there all the while. Tim breaks a stop just above the ship. He hallowed loudly but received no answer. Thoughtfully he slipped back into gear and wheeled not more than a thousand yards when he ground his brakes again, this time not of his own volition, but under the frightening impulse of Beth's horrified gasp. Look! she cried in a breathless whisper, and pointed down the side of the cliff. A ledge of rock thrust itself far out over the sea, about halfway down the cliff. It was the only ledge I had noticed. In the dark no one would have guessed its unexpected abutment, but there on the cliff's ledge, face upward, and arms outstretched in the clear picture of death, lay the rain-coated body of a man. I was out of the car in a single leap, and leaning far over the ledge, a rush of recognition thrust me back upon my heels. No doubt of it, I had seen him only once, but then with the strong light of a flame against his face. It was the tramp who had bagged a light for me as I had stepped from the train the preceding afternoon. Was it the same man who had come across the lawn in the storm to pay his midnight visit? Of that I could not be sure. I explained all this in sentences that must have sounded like telegraph code. Tim looked at him appraisingly. And now dead dead as a smoked herring, he said quietly, and I think the three of us all said a little prayer. We rushed back to the house, driving the car recklessly. Then, as we tumbled into the reception hall, we came to an abrupt halt. The sound of voices came from the dining room, Tim's uncle and the voices of two strangers. We motioned to Beth to drop her coat in her own room, tossed our coats onto the long hall bench, and strode into the midst of a breakfast for three. Tim's uncle sat in his wheelchair at his usual place at the table. To the right and the left of him were two seamen in the uniform of some nondescript merchant marine, but their markings were those of captain and first mate. Without rising, they looked up at us, and then turned inquiringly to Tim's uncle. He greeted us with his customary lack of welcome, but
but handled the introductions under the compulsion of good manners. Captain Smith and Mr. Johnson, his first mate, said Tim's uncle, and I remember thinking at the time that he might have fumbled a few seconds longer and hit on less obviously fictitious names. Captain Smith smiled in oily recognition, rose, and offered a fat hand. Mr. Erkenwold, he said, taking in the uncle with a gracious gesture, has proved a friend in need. The storm last night, it was terrible. What luck brought us into that heaven-provided cove, I do not know. You know the ways of the sea, Captain Foster? he asked casually. The ways of a plane in the air and of any army over the rocks, yes, I misquoted, but put me on sea and I'm a babe in a bathtub. Did a relieved look shoot between the captain and his mate? And was there under the polished English of the officer a slight blur of accent? Or was I finding overtones and hidden meanings in everything in that strange setting? Whatever the case, I know that without signal or sign between us, Tim and I sat down to a second breakfast without a mention of the dead man who lay upon the ledge of rock. We said nothing about that absolutely unscathed ship lying peacefully in a harbor that no luck in the world would ever locate on a night of storm. If they had piloted their ship to safety through those overlapping arms of harbor rock, they had known exactly where they were going and how to get there, even in an equinoctial storm. The captain talked on, supplying us with the explanation which he plainly thought was demanded by the situation. He was quite proud of his little ship, he said. He and his good friend cruised, where other men played golf or went on mountain trips. But the storm last night had been so unexpected. They had taken a bad battering. No doubt of that. It would take them. He looked at the mate for confirmation. Perhaps four days to get the engines running smoothly again. I crossed my fingers under the tablecloth. What fools sailors think of the landlubber, as if a ship with a broken engine could possibly be guided through so narrow an opening in a storm like that. Well, once they had refitted, they'd be on their way to pick up his wife and his mate's family in Boston, then off to Florida to get away from the chilly autumn months. I could almost feel him sigh in relief as he completed his cock-and-bull story. I even thought I saw the heavy eyelid of his mate flicker approval. And your good uncle, he continued addressing Tim, graciously gave the marooned sailors a spotted breakfast. I felt that he had dragged that spot of breakfast out of some English novel he had read. Of course we'll live on our ship, but we are most grateful. Tim guarded the phone in the lower hall against intruders while I phoned from my room. Without difficulty, I got the village central and the sheriff's office. The sheriff's voice sounded as if it was impeded by sleep, and perhaps bacon and eggs. But he snapped to attention when I gave him a synopsis of the scene on the cliff. I'll meet you there immediately, he answered all alertness. For a village sheriff, he sounded remarkably on the job. As I swung from the phone to pick up my hat and coat, I saw my door slowly closing. It took one leap to cross the room and jerk the door open. The valet was walking silently down the hall. "'Were you listening at my door?' I demanded, losing all sense of dignity and discretion. He turned to me a face that would have been blank if I had not felt that it held the corners of a sneer. "'I beg your pardon, sir?' His voice was curved in an insulting query. "'If I catch you,' I began, then figuratively slapped myself for this burst of temper. I stopped short. "'I am not an eavesdropper,' he said, icily polite not even when I think that eavesdropping might bring me interesting information about the guests in this house. A turn of the corridor swallowed him up. If I disliked him as a person, I disliked that voice of his still more. 
cold, controlled, yet flicking like a whip, obsequious, yet insulting. I wanted to yell after him to come back to get his head knocked off his humped shoulders. Instead, I metaphorically shook myself and shot down the stairs to find Tim and Beth waiting for me. Our cars met head-on on the road, overtopping the sea. Out of the official car stepped Sheriff Clem Westbrook, and following him, black bag of office in hand, Dr. Sweet. We shook hands all around, and then knelt down to peer over the cliff at the body on the ledge below. Even as I did, I noticed for the first time that the curve in the road hid the ship from us, and us from the ship. I didn't know why, but I felt infinitely relieved. Clem Westbrook was as genial a soul as ever wore a sheriff's badge, and Dr. Sweet was an old-fashioned horse and buggy doctor, whose duties as coroner didn't take up two weeks out of his year. They both regarded the dead man with objective interest. "'A tramp,' said the sheriff, repeating the title I had applied to the fellow who had approached me near the deserted railroad station. "'They go south this time of year, after summering up here along the seacoast. Probably headed that way and got caught in the storm and thrown off the cliff.' That might, I argued to myself, have been the case, for though the wind blew in off the sea at this point, the curve in the road might have put the wind at the dangerous side, yet that raincoat was not the kind of thing tramps carry around as standard equipment. I commented on that to the sheriff. He laughed good-naturedly. The professions, first of the sea and now of the law, were enjoying themselves at the expense of my amateur standing. They've away, these bums, he said, by picking up needed articles like that. I'll bet some householder couldn't find his raincoat before he went to work this morning. He rose and dusted his knees. Well, we got to get him up here where we can look at him. Unless... He cast a reluctant glance down the sheer cliff. We have to go down to visit him. Tim scanned off his own coat and pulled his driving gloves a little more securely onto his hands. Was I right in thinking that he shot at me a warning glance? A glance that seemed to say I was not to contradict him, no matter what he said? I have a tow chain in the back of my car, he said. If you men will hold it, I'll go down and fasten it around the poor fellow, and you can pull him up. That fell in exactly with their ideas. They were quite willing to let someone else do the dirty work of scrambling down the cliff and fitting the tow chain around the dead body. We leaned heavily away from the edge as Tim went down the cliff like an experienced mountain climber. We consulted together on how best to pull once the chain was fastened around the limp body. We looked down again and answered Tim's hail and let out slack while he, with true Catholic respect for the dead, reined the chain almost reverently under the dead man's arms. We obeyed his signal as he motioned to us to pull away. Slowly, so as not to jolt the body against the cliff, we pulled the victim upward. Then we dropped the chain again, and Tim swiftly clambered up to our level. Tim took off his soiled gloves and tossed them down into the sea. I saw them fall into the water and realized how really narrow that ledge was. If this man had fallen anywhere else along the long line of cliff, he would have dropped into the sea, and the fierce waters would have swept him far off, perhaps never to be returned to land. Some accident had made him fall there where the ledge projected. But if he had not slipped, if he had been fallen or been thrown, then the one who had attacked him would never have thought that at that one small spot was a waiting ledge. He would have been sure that his victim had dropped into the sea, and been swept far beyond the chance of the bodies of reappearing as an accusing corpus delecti. The cheerful little coroner had been leaning over the body. Now he rose and dusted his hands. This was a cursory examination carried to a high art. No doubt of that. A tramp, no question about it. Look at these rags of clothes, and see that gash in his head? Enough to kill an ox. 
fell off the cliff and landed on his head with a blow that killed him quicker than a bolt of lightning. Just turn him over to the potter's field, Sheriff. No use doing more than making a routine report on this for the records. I'll have an ambulance pick up the body. It was all as matter-of-fact and casual as that. The coroner got into the sheriff's car and headed for the village. The sheriff sat himself down, pipe in hand, as cheerful watcher of the dead tramp, and the three of us got back into our car and turned toward Arrow Anchorage. Mentally directing myself to the cove, I had a quick recollection of the ship there, and for the first time I knew that the house took its name from that peaceful little anchorage, which now played hostess to a strangely intriguing visitor. We came within sight of the house. Again Tim braked to a stop, and Beth and I looked at him in wordless surprise. This time he squirmed in the crowded seat and shook loose the right side of his coat. He dived his hand down into his pocket. "'If you think I took that climb down the cliff for the fun of the thing, or just for after-breakfast exercise,' he said, "'you're crazy.' He looked embarrassed. "'I don't know what made me expect this, but I did, and it was there.' He held out his open palm, and again I heard Beth gasp, for he was holding out to us the barb of an arrow, and attached to it was a small broken section of a red shaft. "'Where?' I began, but Tim cut in. "'In his heart,' he answered, while I was working the chain under his arms. I saw the protruding shaft. I pulled it out. The cold night and the exposure had almost sealed the wound. There was no blood, and unless they investigate more carefully, which they won't do on the body of a tramp, they'll not notice the wound or the slight blood stains on his dirty linens. "'Archer?' whispered Beth, voicing my query as well as her own. "'Possibly,' said Tim. "'But do ghost archers shoot real people? "'And why waste an urchin old arrow on a tramp? "'Or is this part of one of the arrows "'that has already been shot by the archer, "'an arrow that suddenly came to a new and deadly use? "'No diagram was needed to make that possibility clear. "'What more perfect weapon for a murderer's hand than an arrow? "'A swift, dagger-like blow, "'and the shaft broken off close to the wound. "'And if that broken shaft was still in the house?' Tim settled down to drive like mad. We took a beating as the car jolted over the ruddy roads. We were at the main entrance in what seemed a flash. And even as we arrived, we became aware of the need for nonchalance and caution. The sudden snorting of a party of bloodhounds searching the house for a broken arrow might, to say the least, be regarded as unusual. So again, without need of words, we literally sauntered into the house and promptly scattered. I walked into the dining room and took a drink from the thermos on the buffet. Near it I had tossed the second arrow that had stuck itself into the paneling. It was still lying there, untouched and intact. I found Tim warming himself at the quite extinct fire in the fireplace that filled the far wall of the reception hall. He was elaborately kicking the cold ash. He shrugged as I approached him, and we followed Beth into the drawing room. There, too, the big, slow-burning log that had lent warmth and color on the preceding evening was now a gray mass of cold ashes. But Beth was not near the hearth. She was standing in the far window, holding something with both hands before her, apparently trying, somewhat clumsily, to conceal something. We crossed the room in quick strides, crowding around as if to be privy to her secret. Her hands, as she swung around, clasped the brim of a dilapidated old hat. It was precisely the sort of hat tramper wear. Under the pillow, she pointed to the deep lounge. It had fallen forward and not been noticed. On a common impulse, we all rushed to the hearth. Tim crouched on his heels, prodding the gray, flaky ashes for something that might be worth our discovery. 
Suddenly he swooped forward, dug his hands into the ashes, and came up holding a small piece of charred wood. No slightest question about it. It was the burned portion of the shaft of an arrow. Tim slipped it into his pocket as we all rose. See if the other arrow is in your room, or anywhere about, I ordered. Even as Tim walked hurriedly toward the door, the wheels of the uncle's chair turned into the drawing-room, and we looked up at the picture framed in the doorway, a horrid caricature of humanity, the uncle wheeled by the repellent valet. Stop, the uncle ordered the valet, as soon as they were within the room. I know the three of us must have faced him with guilty looks on our faces. For a moment we felt like criminals standing in the presence of a judge. I'm having your things packed, he said to us. Then, excluding Beth with a wave of his hand, you two men, I mean. The house is crowded. I'm sending you to town for a real holiday, one I'll be happy to pay for. He saw Tim's quick gesture of refusal, and his eyes narrowed briefly, and then opened in the crooked simultation of avuncular generosity. On second thought, he said, Beth can go along, too. The three of you can see the New York shows, dance at the best nightclubs, have a real spree. You've been working too hard, and I owe it to the brave young soldiers of our country. He could not quite keep the sneer out of his voice, to see that you get back to camp in the best of health. Tim's mouth was very tight. My thanks, uncle, but we are staying here. The role of generous uncle gave way to the solicitous uncle. Then I may as well tell you my real reason. I'm worried for you, Tim, my lad. Oh, it's not that I myself believe in ghosts, but that silly stuff has me worried. Oh, he laughed in an affection of good-humored annoyance with himself. Call me superstitious, if you wish, but I should be much happier, feel much safer, if you are out of the archer's range. Tim sat down in an easy chair with a gesture of finality. You are most unexpectedly kind, he said, but I myself am too much interested in ghosts. And so is Luke, to leave. You don't think, do you, my dear uncle, that I'd leave you to the ghost I myself was afraid to face? The uncle's face lost all pretense of generosity or interested worry. It curled in a blast of undisguised distaste. In back of his head, in a sound that made me a little sick, the valet laughed just once. End of chapter 3 Recording by Maria Therese